0: Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. This episode is one of a series of special dispatches on the sweeping effect that COVID-19 is having on society, the economy, and the future of work. In addition to our regular podcast episodes, we'll be bringing you shorter and more frequent interviews with business leaders, policymakers, and leading scholars on the coronavirus. If you were to create an online education venture as a public service response to the COVID 19 pandemic, it would probably look a lot like the Khan Academy. The nonprofit, founded in 2008, offers thousands of free online classes in dozens of languages for students of all ages. Not surprisingly, it has seen a massive increase in use during the coronavirus, serving now more than 100 million users across 190 countries. I'm joined today by Khan Academy founder, Sal Khan. Sal is a graduate of Harvard Business School who also studied computer science and engineering at MIT. He has been recognized as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and is author of the book, The One World Schoolhouse. Welcome to the podcast, Sal. Great to be here, Bill. Sal, most of our audience will have heard of Khan Academy, but some of the details
1: may be a little bit vague. Can you give us a brief overview? Sure. So we're a not-for-profit with a mission of providing a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And the way that we attempt to deliver on that mission is uh, by giving access to interactive software, videos, uh, teacher tools, starting as early as pre-K all the way through elementary, middle, high school, and even the core of college. So that students, you know, we're most known for math, but it's actually we're expanding into language arts, we're expanding into the sciences, Uh, they can get as much practice and feedback as they need learn at their own time and pace, Uh, teachers can understand where students strengths and weaknesses are, uh, and it's available in over 45 languages
0: with the school closures and a lot of people having time out of work it's not surprising that demand for the materials you just described has uh has skyrocketed we're recording this in early june bring us up to date on how user demand shifted during the pandemic and you know have you noticed any subjects have become more uh more in demand uh, recently yeah
1: about what was it it seems like a lifetime ago now it was back in February, I believe, early February, that we started to see some of our traffic pick up in Asia. You know, two-thirds of our traffic is North America, but we still have we have a lot of users. There's a South Korean, there's a Korean version, I should say, of, of Khan Academy. And we saw that traffic pick up. And then we started getting some emails. as one teacher in particular who was in South Korea Korean Seoul and telling us how they had school closures and they were using Khan Academy. And that was the first time it dawned on us that, wow, this, this COVID thing might create school closures. It's definitely already happening in Asia, and maybe it'll happen in the rest of the world or, and even in the U.S., although it seemed like a very kind of unusual education at the time. And then you get into late February and early March, and then that's where even, you know, my the, 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 my own children's school that I'm on the board of and I helped start, you know, we started having conversations. All right, this is a real thing. Uh, does our school shut down? And and it was still probably about three four days before we started hearing states talk about it or counties talk about it, but that's when it really dawned on the Khan Academy team that, you know, it's one of those moments where you look left, you look right, and you're like, I guess this is us. <laughs> you know, we we couldn't, uh, when we, you know, we built Khan Academy over the last many, many years, imagining worlds where uh, many kids around the world don't have access to school and we could be that support for them, or if they do have access to a school, they don't have access to uh, all the courses or when they are offered, they're not offered at a rigorous world-class level. And even when you do have access to a, a great school with great teachers, uh, you oftentimes, the teachers don't have the tools to support personalization for students to make sure that they have really strong foundations. And and, and that's what we were built for. But when you, we thought about, well, if schools start closing in a big way in the United States and the rest of the world, people are going to need something that is that covers across subjects and grades. They're going to need something that is deep, trusted, has efficacy st- studies behind it, that's accessible, I, I, I and close to as free as possible, that's trustworthy. And you know, you keep adding some of those constraints on, and you're like, wow, I, I, yeah, this, this, this we have to step up. Uh, and so we immediately stressed, started stress testing our servers, saying maybe we'll get 2X, 3X traffic. This was before we saw what the real traffic would be. We said, we gotta start planning for webinars for teachers and parents. We've got to start uh, creating learning plans, daily schedules, so that parents know how to structure students' days in, in constructive ways without feeling overwhelmed. And then that Monday, when pretty much you know we had California, and then shortly afterwards, frankly, most of the rest of the U.S. by mid that week, I think this was the middle the middle of March, um, shutting down. You know, our traffic was up eighty percent on Monday, one hundred twenty five percent on Tuesday, one hundred fifty percent on Wednesday, and it, it kind of stabilized at a steady state of about 250 to 300% of normal traffic. Uh, normally on a weekday during the school year, we would, we would have about 30 million learning minutes per day, we were seeing closer to 80 million learning minutes per day. And we saw registrations go through the roof. Parent registrations were 20 times what they normally are. Teacher and student registrations were five to 10 X what they normally were. So, you know, it was just kind of a full court press for us. We just tried to keep up with the demand Uh, And then realize, well, what else can we do to support people? How do we keep them learning through the end of the school year? Because it got, it was pretty obvious within the first few weeks that it would be through the end of the school year. And now we're working on ways to keep people learning over the summer. And then as we go to, as we start to think about back to school, which is happening um, faster or sooner than, you know, everything's happening fast you realize that students are going to have, every year, students have a huge variance in their preparedness for their grade level. And that's something that we've talked about forever at Khan Academy, that every kid learns at different paces, has different gaps, and every teacher knows in a class of 20, 25, 30 students, they all have different needs, but it's very hard for an individual teacher to cater to those individual needs. So they essentially go through the motions of fixed-paced instruction Uh, But this year is going to be that much worse. Some kids would have kept engaged on things like Khan Academy, while other students would have been completely not engaged in learning for five or six months where they're not only not learning, but they're forgetting. So we're doing a whole series of courses uh, called get ready for grade level courses. So let's imagine a sixth grader. We have a sixth grade math course, but you could have a course Uh, That you could do it, all of these things you could do at your own time and pace, where you start at the very basics of the prerequisites for sixth grade and it quickly accelerates through what you know, but it allows you to focus on what you don't know so that when you enter into sixth grade, you're optimally prepared and ideally continue to work at your own time and pace on the sixth grade course and then keep moving to seventh and eighth grade and beyond. So our family is part of those
0: 80 uh, million minutes per, uh, per uh, day that you're having. So thank you uh, for that. And let me also continue on a personal side. The, the word on the street is that for our school resumption in September, it's going to be more of a hybrid model that mm-hmm. we're probably going to have to have some uh, this elementary school kids sometime at home, sometime in the classroom. Are you guys preparing anything special for that type of environment where it's a mixture of in-class and also virtual?
1: Yeah, you know, we, this is a world, to, by definition, if you have a hybrid model, and you know, as you mentioned, that hybrid model might be kids coming in shifts, there's going to be some subset of the families where they just don't feel comfortable sending their kids uh, until we have a, a broadly available vaccine and the health risk isn't there anymore, and so all of whatever, the instruction, the curriculum, the learning, has to have an accessible online aspect to it. And so what we've, you know, we've already seen over the last several months during the first wave of closures that uh, teachers who might have been using Khan Academy as a bit of a supplement, say 45 minutes a week, an hour a week, we're now leaning really, really heavily on it. But you need more structures above and beyond that. You need some form of synchronous connections over video conferencing. Uh, You need ways to uh, make sure that students are, are, you know, keeping track, setting their goals, being held accountable. And so they, you know, they've they've been leaning on things like Academy much, much, much more heavily. It, it's become maybe 60% of, of what they do. And so when we go into this very uncertain environment, what we are working on, uh, actually we're, we're working on a project that hasn't been publicly announced, but I guess we'll talk about it. It's nothing controversial. We're working with McKinsey and Company on essentially, you know, can we, can we document what were the best practices over the last several months and also come up with a playbook and even a, a bit of a checklist and, and guide for districts and educators as they try to navigate what things look like over the the next 6 months or so. And in my mind, you know, at the Khan Academy layer, these get ready for grade level courses are going to be important to get, you know, fill in people's gaps, diagnose their weaknesses, the grade level Khan Academy courses, above and beyond just offering them, we're going to be creating learning plans so people can understand goals over the course of the year, essentially what's a reasonable pacing. I think we'll also be sending out you know, archetypes or guidelines, and this could be related to the study we're going to do with McKinsey, around what should the whole system look like in hybrid learning? You know, a lot, as to your point, a lot of districts, you know, they've consulted the doctors and the doctors have told them or the, the epidemiologists have told them, okay, you're going to have to do some form of shift based or social distancing, but no one really knows yet or has a clear idea what that means from a curricular point of view. And I think we can help share what, a reasonable baseline curriculum that's reasonably easy to implement for folks could look like. It's not going to be ideal. I don't wanna pretend like it's a replacement for what uh, folks for, for the ideal that folks were doing it before, but I think it will be helpful to give people something to anchor on.
0: Yeah, along those lines, do you have any of the large school districts coming to you and asking for very customized or special programs for them? And, and maybe a related question is, is there anything that you hear from teachers or from schools, perhaps around accreditation or some kind of scoring that you guys have to say that's too far for what Khan Academy wants to serve?
1: Well, the simple answer is yes. We, we've, we've, we were already working with several large districts, The large district that we had a very deep partnership Uh, With has been Clark County, which is greater Las Vegas, which is the fifth largest school district in America. It's uh, on the order of 300,000 students. And we've had a partnership with them for over a year where. Their, they take their standardized assessments and then that's integrated with Khan Academy. And then the, the teachers and the principals and the district officials all have dashboards to understand not only what the engagement is, but how that's driving growth uh, in student learning. And so you can imagine we've continued to have those conversations with them. And as we've gone into COVID, the, the, num- the number of conversations has only, you know, it's, it's, it's been growing exponentially. And it's, it, you know, we're, we're, we're a lot bigger than we used to. A lot of people still think Khan Academy is Sal in the walk-in closet, although I have had to go back to the walk-in closet. But it's, um, you know, we're, we're over 200 folks now, but it's still, we're relatively small, rel, you know, cons- relative to the problem. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're a budget of a large high school uh, and, and 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 trying to serve over 100 million students a year. And um, so so we're trying to, frankly, just do what we can. You know, some of these notions of accreditation or credit, it has been brought up even in this world where a lot of the traditional assessments have, have, can't be administered. If, when folks think about it, they're like, well, Khan Academy is by definition standardized. And in some ways it's better than a traditional assessment because it's, as students practice and get feedback, it forms a much more granular view of where that student is for the moment, but it's not a, high stakes and that students can always improve on it but it does hopefully give a reasonably accurate read of of where they are and you know my view is we're trying to i I do have some skunk works projects where i am trying to talk to uh governments and and accreditation bodies about look if a student is able to show mastery on khan academy in say algebra 2 or college algebra they should get the high school credit for it and maybe they even should get the college credit for it. It's a whole other topic, but college algebra is, you know, often known as the killing fields of, of kids who are uh, entering into community college. It's the course that is the single biggest course that weeds them out when they frankly should have learned it in 10th grade. And, and so, yeah, we're, 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 we're trying to look at every possible way that we can step up. And, you know, this is a moment, a lot of the stuff we've just talked about, We've been thinking about for a long time you know there's three pillars of our organization one is accessibility that everyone in the world should have access to world-class material across subjects and grades second one is that they should be able to access it in a way that gives them uh, opportunity incentives to diagnose and identify their gaps learn at their own pace and the third one is they should be able to as they learn they should be able to signal to the world that they've learned it and so they can get economic opportunity or get academic credit uh, and, and obviously, that's that much more important right now when everyone's experience is inconsistent and kind of scattershot. Yeah, this,
0: in, this um, scattershot and inconsistency can relate to something that the pandemic's really highlighted, which is inequality, both uh, in the United States and internationally. And it, especially over the last couple of weeks, as we're recording this podcast, the protests around Black Lives Matter has been very widespread. What role do you think Khan Academy can play in addressing some of these forms of inequality and helping to lower the education gaps that exist in America?
1: Yeah, it's something I've been thinking a lot of. I mean, I, we've always thought about it, but obviously between COVID and uh, the, some of the cases of police brutality we've seen and, and you know the, the killings and the marches, it's, it's you know, increased our focus on what is our role and how we might be able to, 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 to play a role? You know, obviously our, our core mission, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere, I think over the long run, actually is the most important lever for um, not only empowering the oppressed, but also enlightening the oppressor, so to speak, uh, you know, uh, who sometimes starts oppressing without even knowing they're oppressing. And and, and that's where education uh, can play a role. In In the short run, you know, there's definitely forms of inequality that are very stark that we're seeing out of the COVID crisis. The, the, the most obvious one is uh, internet accessibility. And obviously for Khan Academy to do its work, it's kind of based on the assumption that someone has a, a reasonable uh, device access and internet access. And we know that that isn't true for everyone, especially the kids, frankly, that we want to serve the most. The, our role is to kind of, you know, use whatever soapbox we have to say, look, this Internet access—it's not, frankly, just an academic issue. It's a, it's an economic issue. It's, a, it's frankly a mental health issue right now to, to be able to stay connected with the world. The good, the silver lining is we are seeing, you know, frankly, change has been happening over the last decade or so, pretty, pretty quickly. But the COVID crisis, I think, has been an ultra catalyst for making people serious about closing the digital divide. School districts like New York City. Uh, distributed close to 300,000 devices, uh, created uh, partnerships with the local telecom carriers for free internet access, at least over the course of the crisis. We saw similar things in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Miami. So that's a silver lining there, but there's more work to be done on the access issue. And obviously, as you start thinking globally, uh, still even more work. You know, what I, you know, maybe this is a cop-out, but also some comfort for me is that as much as it pains that we can't reach every, child or everyone who wants to learn today because of internet access issues the adoption is as faster faster than almost every technology that we've seen before and so if you if you look to where the the puck is going so to speak in five or ten years i do think that we can deliver on you know most of humanity if, unless they have some kind of tyrannical government who's shutting down the internet or there's some war or famine that we should hopefully be able to to, to reach them in terms of the you know, anti-racism movement. You know, this has obviously been a huge conversation in our organization, and I've, I framed it with our team. Is you know, look, number one, it's it's obvious that we should express solidarity with the anti-racism movement. It's you know, I, I have trouble fathoming how you cannot, <laughs> you know, what what, what the counter argument is to expressing solidarity with the anti-racism movement. And frankly, that's easy because, um yeah, that it, it's everyone is doing it, so to speak. So, you know, I don't think any organization should get major points for kind of almost stating the obvious. I, I think that, but the next layer after uh, the solidarity is, you know, we do have thought leadership and, you know, I'm, I'm a curious person and I'm constantly on a learning journey. And, you know, I have outlets similar to the outlet that you you have with this uh, podcast where, you know, I have a live stream and I interview guests and I have said, you know, like, I want to interview more guests about, Issues of race, issues of policing, uh, issues of systemic inequality, and because I want to learn, it's not just you know to kind of talk about platitudes. I I really want to understand these issues on a more nuanced level. And in, as I go on that journey, I want other people to as well. And I also want it to be about solutions. You know, what are the actionable things that people can do uh, to move to move society forward? I think the third place that Khan Academy has a role is. You We have courses in American history, in world history, in civics. And uh, those are clear outlets where, you know, I've always prided that Khan Academy is a non-political organization. We we strive for the truth, and uh, I think we've done a, a good job at it. We're not going to be perfect. Everyone has biases or collections of biases, but we definitely strive for it. But I think this does make us think, okay, as we create these architect archetype or reference curricula or you know resources around American history and civics let's make sure that we get all the perspectives let's make sure we get the voices let's make sure that uh, we we get as close to the 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 truths as as we can as we can given that you know a lot of history is kind of there you know it's lost but a lot of it is there and we've just kind of ignored it Um, so I think that's that and then you know I think as someone who's running an organization there's hard questions that we have to, you know, introspect about our own organization, our, you know, what biases do we have or do we not have? And, you know, I, one thing I do tell the team, though, is, you know, when we think about diversity and inclusiveness, it should be a conversation that makes all of us a little bit out of our comfort zone. Even those of us who, who think we're, we're very progressive, are, are we diverse, are, are we open to diverse perspectives who disagree with us, who are are we inclusive of people who are not on the, the other side of the, the political spectrum? Uh, I think is a, a real conversation. I mean, I, you know, Frank, openly it's a conversation we're having inside the organization right now. I, I, I think we, we do have, uh, sometimes we are living in our own echo chambers.
0: We appreciate you thinking about those uh, roles as a manager and how you're having some of these hard conversations. Let me just ask you to continue on that vein, but perhaps even broaden the net out a little bit more. of Many leaders are struggling to figure out how to manage teams virtually for the first time, or how to conduct meetings, or and your your Khan Academy is obviously in in one of those beneficial uh, positions where this has led to a huge surge in demand and a lot of race to keep up. Other companies are not. Unfortunately, uh, course, you're going to be going in the opposite direction, but any reflections on what worked for you or didn't as you've kind of steered Khan Academy through the COVID crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, in terms of how virtualizable we've been as an organization, well, you know, first of the benefit, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, we feel very lucky that we've been able to play a role and that our impact has gone up by a factor of two or three. But, you know, on the other side, there's real issues, of you know, our, quote, business model, so to speak, is philanthropic donations. And you can imagine our server costs have gone up. <laughs> we're, we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, accelerate all of these programs. So our budget has gone up dramatically. Uh, and, you know, what I've told the team is this is a moment where we have to do the right thing and hope that the philanthropic community, the corporate sector, that they will also recognize that Khan Academy is an incredibly high leverage, you know, high return so, or high social return on investment. And hopefully they step up. So that's introduced challenges of its own in terms of the the resourcing. We are more aggressively dipping into our reserves than than ever. So that I'm happy to talk about how we navigate that. But on the virtualization of our execution, so to speak, you know, we were already about 30, 35% of our workforce was fully virtual or distributed or remote already pre-COVID. And then I would say of the other 65%, about half of them were we're kind of a hybrid, uh, you know, they would come into the office, but they might live an hour, hour and a half away. And so they would maybe spend a day or two uh, working from home. So we we always did have a lot of practices, almost any meeting in our organization always had at least one person who was virtual. Uh, so it was pretty easy for us to transition there. In fact, it, it, it was frankly seamless uh, on that front. I think what was more difficult, and this is true, of, I'm, I got, I've got to believe almost any organization in the world right now is you know, people had stuff going on in their life. All of a sudden, you know, their kids' schools are closed. The kids are screaming in the next room. And I'm speaking from personal experience. They have uh, parents that are worried about, they're worried about their health and safety of their own family. Um, That's stressful. And if you're in a business where, you know, the finances are getting that much tighter and there's economic uncertainty, that's incredibly stressful. And so one thing that we did for our team is – we said look we recognize that this is a tough scenario and you can imagine our team many of the same people whose productivity was getting hurt because their kids are screaming in the next room they're feeling guilty because now's our time as an organization to step up and that causes a lot of stress on the individual uh they either feel like they're neglecting their family or they feel like they're neglecting work and and they're not able to do either and so we've we definitely told our team look you've got to take care of yourself first and foremost you know you can try to be a hero but that can only last so long and you're going to end up burning yourself out you're going to end up burning your family out you're going to end up you know not treating your family right and you're probably going to end up having to take you know some form of leave anyway from work because you're going to get so burned out so this is a time where you have to take stock of where you truly are invest in yourself uh you know do what you need to do what your for your family we aren't going to be judging folks you know, we, we have a perspective of who's performing well in the org, who, who might not be performing where they need to pre-COVID, um, but we're not going to do kind of dramatically modify those. We trust folks that they're not going to take advantage of what we're saying. And I think that really lowered the stress level for a lot of uh, team members. Uh, but, you know, as you can imagine, as the more that COVID has gone on um, – and obviously we're, we're, we're living right now and, you know, not just COVID is out there generating stress. There's economic uncertainty, you know, there's, there's protests in the street, uh, that are, for, you know, for the great majority peaceful, but, you know, we have coworkers who have said, Hey, there's, there's some looting going on across the street from where I live. That's stressful. You know, you, even if you're super supportive of the protest, that's, that's stressful to see that type of thing. So yeah, we're, we're just trying to make sure people take care of themselves. And then, you know, those of us who, have the right supports who are in a good place that we're able to uh, pick up a little bit of the slack so that we can deliver. Cause a lot of the world is depending on us right now. You know, what would you hope Khan Academy would do now that this is
0: also your moment over the next five, 10 years, what's the vision of, of where you want this organization to go?
1: Yeah. You know, when I set up Khan Academy as a not-for-profit back in 2008, I was, you know, just some guy. My my day job, I was an analyst at a hedge fund. uh, But I was like, yeah, you know, let me. The reason why I I live in Silicon Valley, and a lot of my friends from school are VCs and entrepreneurs, and there was a lot of temptation to turn into a for-profit organization. But you know, I kind of just did the thought experiment of what a what a what a home run would look like in the for-profit world. I said, well, that that's great, Uh, but when you think about the scale, you know, the 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 swath of history, you know, (laughs) generations, it is hard to point to for-profit organizations that have been able to stay true to a global mission. Um, and I, you know, I obviously, get, given my previous job as an analyst at hedge fund, I believe in markets. Uh, and I believe that a lot of good and innovation, arguably you know, a, the majority of it, the great majority of it happens through uh, free enterprise. Uh, but I think there's parts of society where either markets don't function well, or when they do function, they lead to outcomes that aren't consistent with our values. And I do think education and healthcare, there's space for for sure. There's a lot of good for profits doing great work in there, but uh, there, you know, as a society, we don't want you know someone's um, access to learning to be dependent on you know the zip code that they live in, or or you know whether they have a credit card accessible, uh, and, um, and and you want to stay true to that mission. And even when I was you know an analyst at hedge fund, I saw so often how capital structure drives incentives over and over again. And I wanted to take the long view. So anyway, that's why I set it up as a not-for-profit. It was a little delusional for a guy in a walk-in closet to say, hey, this, maybe this could be in the next great institution. Maybe this could be like the Smithsonian or Oxford. And frankly, even back then when Khan Academy was only serving 50 or 100,000 people, we were already serving more learning minutes than, you know, a lot of universities had done over hundreds of years. And it's like, maybe it's not that delusional. And so, you know, you fast forward to today and where we're going in the future, I think it's, you know, Khan Academy has shown that it, it was good that we, we started with that little a somewhat delusional view because it, it's turning out that it's doable. And not only is it doable, it's, but it's a necessity for the world. Obviously, we've been talking about the COVID crisis. But when you just think about the broader uh, trends that are happening with autom- automation, artificial intelligence, that traditional labor pyramid is either going to turn into a much smaller pyramid at the very top where everyone else is like, well, what's my role in society? And then you're going to have to have, you know, to have a stable society, you know, ex- extreme wealth redistribution or, uh, or unrest, or you figure out ways for more or most people to operate at the top of that pyramid, arguably invert the labor pyramid. And I think if we're going to do that, if we're going to do that at scale, it's got to be uh, the existing education system, uh, but also... Organizations like Khan Academy supporting them, building the tools for them. And when there are gaps, as there are in many communities, uh, we we can fill in those gaps. So I'm hoping, you know, 10 years out, uh, everything we talked about that literally anyone on the planet in pretty much any major world language can access their potential from pre K through elementary, middle, high school, college in math, reading, writing, uh, human, you know, social sciences, sciences. Uh, and they're able to do it in a way that is engaging. It's at their own time and pace uh, and uh, essentially prove what they know to the world so that they can, you know, have healthy, happy lives and participate in democracy in a, in a robust way. It's a wonderful way for us to end this. Sal, thanks so much for taking time out of a very busy
0: day to join us. Uh, Sal Khan is the founder uh, and CEO of Khan Academy, which is part of many of our lives right now during the COVID crisis and will be uh, and the uh, months uh, going forward. Thanks, Sal. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Managing the Future of Work podcast. To find out more information about our project on the future of work and for more information on the coronavirus's impact, visit our website at hbs.edu forward slash Managing the Future of Work and sign up for our newsletter.